Welcome to the Protestants and Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nap Nasworth. I've been exploring the intersection of churches, Christians, theology, and public life for over 20 years as both a professor and a journalist. But I still have lots of questions. I invite you to continue learning with me as I interview interesting voices in this field. I feel like I said and did things during those years that I, that I regret very deeply and I even feel embarrassed about. You know, arguing with girlfriends about how they shouldn't get ordained, that it was against God's will. I mean, if anybody can even imagine doing that. Being not terribly nice uh, to even a couple very close friends who were gay men, uh, telling them that they were outside of the order, good order of God. I mean, really, if you hear sadness, I'm almost close to tears at this point. Does pro-slavery theology still influence evangelicals today? This issue has come up recently as some white evangelicals have been grappling with the issue of racism in their churches. Here are two examples. A 1998 interview with Southern Baptist theologian Al Mohler was uncovered in which he said, Harriet Tubman was disobeying the Bible and disobeying her master when she was a slave. Moeller repudiated what he said and called it, quote, incredibly stupid. And just this week, a 2012 video of Pastor John MacArthur's service in which he said, quote, to throw out slavery as a concept simply because there have been abuses, I think, is to miss the point, end quote. And then he talked about the supposed benefits, that's his word, of slavery for some people, such as those who were uneducated. At the time of this taping, August 28th, MacArthur has not repudiated those remarks. My guest to talk about this issue is preacher, speaker, and writer Diana Butler Bass. Her doctorate from Duke University is in religious studies, and she has written 10 books. Her most recent is Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. In 2016, she won the Religion News Association Nonfiction Book Award for Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution. Her other awards are just too numerous to mention here, but you can sign up for her newsletter, The Cottage, at dianabutlerbass.substack.com. I'll include a link in the podcast description. Diana Butler Bass, thank you for joining the Protestants in Politics podcast. It's good to be here. It's a great topic and a great name for a podcast. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so you've written all these books, but actually I brought you on to write about a tweet thread. How, you know, how modern is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes I, I speak at uh, writers' conferences, and uh, I always tell people to write every day. And uh, they, they look at me like, oh, that's really hard. I said, even if it's one really well-constructed tweet. So I guess you took me seriously. <laughs> well, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so this was over two months ago, This uh, the tweet thread we're talking about, which I'll link to in the podcast description, uh, you wrote on June 11th. But it was just one of those things I could get out of my head. It, it stuck with me for, for a while. And uh and I was thinking about it as I was thinking about guests to bring on my uh, podcast here. And in this tweet thread, you write about your experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. So before we talk about what you wrote in that tweet thread, um, just to help set, a, set it up for our listeners, 
just explain. So what, what is Gordon Conwell's place and reputation within the world of evangelical seminaries and churches? Well, Gordon Conwell is an important institution. Um, people who grew up in the West, uh, like I did, often call it the Fuller of the East. And uh, if you know that Fuller is really one of the flagship you know, evangelical seminaries. And so, so Gordon Conwell is. Um, years ago, when I was actually in graduate school, I wrote a paper on the history of Gordon Conwell vis-a-vis uh, -vis the evangelical community. And it's a, a long standing, um, very reputable school uh, that put together the legacies of two really important schools in evangelicalism, the Conwell School of Theology going back into the 19th century and uh, the, the Divinity School of Gordon College. And so anyway, uh, it's a place I went to the seminary um, in the 1980s because I was living in Pasadena at the time, and I just didn't want to go to the local seminary. I wanted to do something a little different. So I found myself uh, on a plane heading to Boston and there I spent four years of my life, and that's uh, where I got my master's degree in church history. Yeah, and just to add to that, I, I was a Young Life volunteer in college from 1988 to 1994. And I know within my circle of friends, uh, you know, a lot of these young uh, evangelical volunteers for Young Life, those who were considering go to, going to seminary, Gordon, Con Gordon Conwell was normally mentioned along with Fuller and some others as, uh, you know, the place to at least look at if you were considering seminary. So it, uh, it, it's, it has a significant role among evangelicals, uh, you know, uh, who are considering becoming a pastor. Yeah. Um, uh, the other thing that, you know, kind of underscores its importance, uh, Billy Graham was actually the president of the Board of Trustees when I was a student there. And um, there were several grandchildren and grandchildren who had been students or who actually were students at the school the same time I attended. And it was at Gordon Conwell, one of our graduation ceremonies, that Billy Graham came out and talked about how he was opposed to the nuclear arms race. And so, you know, with that whole connection with the Graham family and uh, the prestige that they brought to uh, the evangelical community in the late 20th century. You know, Gordon Conwell was just, it was just a very significant place. I haven't tracked it nearly as much as an alum. I know there's been a lot of conflict uh, there over the last uh, 25 or 30 years. One of the sort of changes in that conflict, I know we're going to talk about together today. Yeah. So let's go ahead and get to that. So uh, just tell us the, your, the story you, explained in, in the tweet thread about uh, how these uh, theologians at Gordon Conwell dealt with the issue of race and racism. Well, it was a, it was a very interesting time at Gordon Conwell. I was there between 1982 and 1986. And um, it was, Gordon Conwell was in a period of transition from being a lot more like Fuller, which was a very, uh, at the time, open form of evangelicalism. And uh, Fuller always was engaged in the culture a little bit ahead of other 
evangelical communities. And so that moniker, calling Gordon Conwell Fuller East, sort of gives a sense of where Gordon Conwell was. It was an evangelical institution that very early on said, hey, if you're from a denomination that ordains women, women are welcome into our Masters of Divinity track. Um, it was a, a, a an institution that was very friendly to the charismatic movement, which was a big deal um, in the 1970s and 1980s. So, so there was a kind of an open, um, semi-charismatic, uh, friendly environment to asking questions. And because it was also that same time period, there were so many evangelicals that were actively involved in social justice in the 1970s and 80s. And so it was a place where there were many students influenced by Sojourners, by The Other Side Magazine, by Ron Sider, by Tony Campolo, um, evangelical feminism. So that's what Gordon Conwell was like uh, when I went there. And because of that, uh, there were faculty members that were, some of them were from mainline denominations, um, a fellow by the name of Dean Borgman. And um, there was an ethicist whose name slips my mind right now. I believe it was uh, Stephen Mott. He was a Methodist. And um, they were bringing uh, to this evangelical community, they themselves were also evangelicals, uh, interest in social justice issues. Uh, Borgman was very interested in issues of race. And the Methodist ethicist um, was as well, um, in addition to being concerned about issues of liberation, theology, and poverty. So I can remember when the first year I was at Gordon-Conwell, one of the things that was offered to us as students was racial sensitivity training. And uh, it's so funny to sort of talk about that now. I guess, you know, companies and stuff still do this. But Gordon-Conwell was on it fairly, you know, fairly early. And um, they just would have basically small groups. They were uh, sort of functionally race, racial consciousness raising groups, the way that there used to be feminist consciousness raising groups, where students would sit around with a faculty member and talk about how they understood issues of race, what it meant to be white, what it meant to be black, etc. And so it, that's a sense of the environment was this very... Uh, fluid, even open, uh, engaged with more liberal Protestants, certainly looking towards social justice issues kind of place. But at the very same time all this was going on, Gordon Conwell in their in the uh, New Testament and theology departments hired in a number of professors who came from very conservative and distinctly reformed backgrounds. Um, later on, uh, this would come to be known as sort of the, the neo-Calvinist movement that had a huge impact on particularly the Southern Baptist Convention in the 1980s, 90s, and early aughts. But then it was just, it, it had no name. Um, just these professors showed up and they had a very different sort of take on uh, biblical interpretation and also social justice issues. And I can remember, um, I, I got to be good friends with a couple of them, were really, really nice people, and uh, very open to, to being friends with students. And I can remember uh, sitting at lunch with one professor in particular, and 
we started talking about some of my theological interests, which were also interests in history. And he asked me if I had ever heard of Dabney and Thornwell, Robert Dabney and James uh, H. Thornwell, and who were 19th century theologians. And I said, uh, no, who are they? And so he started going on about how wonderful they were. They were Southern Presbyterian theologians who were active um, in the early and mid part of the 19th century. And I, I was kind of fascinated. And the reason why that's interesting is that Dabney and Thornwell are the theologians in the Southern tradition of American theology that constructed the argument to justify slaveholding. Um, not just that slaveholding was like permissible, uh, but that slaveholding was actually a moral good and that it was uh, for the good of society because it promoted a godly hierarchy and it also was the ven- the the vehicle for the slaves to become Christian. So so anyway, uh, that was my introduction to this whole sort of tradition of Southern theology. And, you know, I was not the only person who started hearing this, uh, not only from individual professors and conversations in the lunchroom, uh, but also the sort of lenses of interpretation to scripture were brought into New Testament classes. And um, the theology that Dabney and Thornwell and other Southern slavery apologists presented uh, began to show up as a legitimate alternative um, in our ethics classes. And there were students who were horrified by this. Um, I, I, Looking back, I'm not even sure what I made of it, except for the fact that I had never heard of it and it w- was interesting. Uh, but nevertheless, um, here we were sitting at a a seminary with a history of social justice out of New England evangelicalism, which was a, a tradition largely shaped by abolition. And we were being taught uh, Southern slaveholding theology from the 19th century that was being introduced to the seminary uh, via mostly uh Southern theologians and biblical scholars who had been recently hired into the school. And this, of course, resulted in a huge, not only the students being in uh, tension with one another, but actually a conflict among the faculty. What did they like about these pro-slavery arguments or the the theologies that ended up supporting slavery? I mean, they're not actually pro-slavery, right? So it's just something they found in the theologies that they thought was good. Well, I think what it did is it sort of came along with a whole package of things. The late 1980s, if I can, I think that that time in evangelicalism was a bit of a counter reaction to the evangelical awakening of the 70s. And, you know, the 70s had been messy and the Jesus freak movement and kind of open ended evangelicalism. I had gone to an evangelical college in California and uh, we uh, experimented with all kinds of things, Uh, intentional community. We had sort of missionary groups that went down into Latin America and uh, we, you know, we were very aware 
of the emergence of liberation theology. There was a lot of really what I would call edgy uh, evangelicalism that was very socially activist um, as a result of the Jesus movement in the 1970s. In the 1980s, you get this kind of uh, reversal of that as if some churches or individual theologians or institutions sort of thought it went too far. And so there began to be within evangelicalism in the late mid to late eighties, a, a sort of a longing for order over and against what had been perceived as more chaotic uh, in the seventies. And so there was, there began to be throughout the 1980s in and throughout, I think, the whole evangelical subculture, a new or renewed emphasis on hierarchy. Um, boy, I can't even remember the number of sermons I heard preached on Ephesians chapter 5. And um, the idea that there was a sort of a obedient and patriarchal polity for the body politic, not just for the church, but for the world that was part of God's desire for the good society. And that if we were really serious about wanting to bring forth the kingdom of God, well, the kingdom of God was all of this. Uh, Wives uh, submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. Children obey your parents. Slaves obey your masters. Uh, there was huge emphasis on the idea of we were supposed to obey anyone who's placed in authority over us. Um, and so th- those passages that evangelicals seem to zoom in on, particularly in Pauline uh, writings, uh, became the sort of leading edge of interpretation. And so I, I think, you know, what was happening is that uh, here were all here were all these. Uh, I was in my twenties um, in the mid nineteen mid nineteen eighties, and so here were all these young evangelicals who had gone through this sort of uh, messy, enthusiastic, uh, non hierarchical, um, non authoritarian form of evangelicalism in the nineteen seventies, and we were all now students, young adults, and we were put in this environment where all of a sudden there's backlash occurring. And, you know, I don't know that any of us knew particularly much better (laughs) than what we were being taught or the currents that we were caught up in at the time. But these are the same currents. So this was the way it was happening at Gordon-Conwell was these new kinds of theological voices of order. And it wasn't that slavery was like, black people should be enslaved. That was not it. But instead, the idea was God has a design for the way community is supposed to function. And community functions along these lines of authority um, and these lines of, of power. And if you violate those things, well, then that destabilizes society. And the the primary scriptures were those scriptures in Ephesians and Romans. And so you have that kind of movement at a place like Gordon Conwell, but it's also the same movement that's going on with the fundamentalist takeover of the Southern Baptist convention. Um, And so it was the same quest for order, the same quest for a 
uh, hierarchical embodied kingdom of God in American politics um, began to express itself in different parts of evangelicalism, but right around the same time. And I really think that's what was happening at Gordon-Conwell. Okay, so I, I want to preface this next question by saying, you know, I, I understand that individual pastors have lots of different influences in their lives. And uh, I, I want to sort of paint with a broad brush, but I don't want to, I, I don't think any individual pastor should get offended at this because uh, uh, I know everyone is different and so forth. But just thinking more broadly, let's, let's, let's paint with that broad brush. So you have a generation of pastors who've been influenced by these uh, uh, theological seminaries, these thinkers. So how, how is that going to show up in their churches and how they... Uh, either how they govern their churches or how they teach their congregation? Where, where would you see these influences? What, what would you be looking for? You know, that's a, very, that, that's a really thoughtful question. I think that, you know, the place it shows up in our culture most obviously is around evangelical attitudes towards women. Because while, of course, no one particularly wants to say, oh, well, maybe we should have slaves. Because... <laughs> Ephesians says so. Um, nevertheless, people are really happy to talk about the earlier parts of those same passages, by which they're they're drawing a, a hermeneutic of politics out of those passages. Is essentially what's going on, and um, so so the 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 sort of the the crushing weight of putting women in subservient positions, um, particularly. Well, particularly in the church, but also within the family, um, is certainly a trait of that. And and while it is less acceptable to say, hey, let's hold slaves, it is not unacceptable in far too many evangelical communities to get up into a pulpit and say, wives, submit to your husbands. It's the same, it's the same text and it's the same hermeneutic. And so I think that in our society where people our white people are far more skittish of talking about race and what they really think about race. They are less so guarded when they talk about women. What, what about how churches today are sort of dealing with the Black Lives Matter movement? And I know I've seen a lot recently about uh, critical race theory, and that's become a big point of contention between uh, different sides, you know, within evangelicalism. So just, just talk a little bit about what's going on there. I kind of want to go on just a little bit uh, with the previous question, and then we can kind of move into the way Black Lives Matter is impacted. I, I, I've been sort of struggling with understanding what I went through in the 1980s uh, for a very long time. Um, to, cause to be perfectly honest, I was very, I found the argument for order very compelling and, uh, it was partly personal, uh, a whole bunch of confusion in my own life as a young evangelical woman. And I think it was also partly cultural, you know, we were just living in a time when, um, many things had been uprooted through the sixties and seventies. And that's when I 
that's when I was born and raised was my childhood, my teenage years and my young adulthood. And by the time I was in my mid twenties, I was exhausted, you know, and it was like, boy, we really could, we really do need to put the pieces back together. You know, and the idea that Jesus wanted to put the pieces back together was a uh, compelling and moving and spiritually fulfilling for me. So, so to be very honest, these are ideas that I embraced when I first heard them. Um, and I liked the hermeneutic that had emerged out of the, that Ephesians passage. And so, so there I was um, as a young woman in seminary, um, sort of buying this whole, whole argument. And it was the place around race that it first began to uh, un- unfurl for me. And I can remember when I was teaching um, very early in my career, when these ideas were still kind of haunting me and I was trying to make my way through them, uh, I was talking about Ephesians 5 in a class and how Southern theologians, it was literally a sermon, or excuse me, a lecture on Dabney and Thornwell and the whole argument for slavery and the vision of Southern culture and the world that Southern culture, the holistic vision Southern culture presented in 19th century um, for white people. And I, I, so I, 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 I gave this lecture and afterwards a student came up to me and said, okay, so um, the text says, uh, wives submit to your husbands. And it also says slaves obey your masters. And I said, yes. And, I, and then I, we talked about how the Southern theological tradition put those things together. And the student lo- literally looked at me. He said, well, I never really thought about that before. I guess I'll have to rethink my views on slavery. And I said, what do you, what do you mean? He said, well, I guess it's all right to own slaves. That for me, hearing that student say that the argument uh, that I had presented as a historical argument in class had actually convinced him that slavery was morally positive was so horrifying for me that I, I literally said, oh, what has even happened here? And that was when I went back to those texts and began to look um, at the hermeneutic that had been the, the two visions of hermeneutics that had really been struggling around in my soul for about a decade at the point when the student said that I had just made this extraordinary case for slavery, which was never, never my intention. And so, so what I think is, what I think is happening now, you know, when I think about that moment when I began to see how seminal this 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 problem was and, and how it was related to our ways of interpreting the Bible, I had to go back and kind of reassemble my entire theological worldview. That is a hard path for individuals to take. And what I think has happened is that those views got to some portion of the evangelical community, like it did that student in that lecture that one day. And they just said, oh, well, maybe these two things are related. Maybe race and gender are related. And maybe I have to rethink how I understand race 
And then they do that in the negative rather than in the positive, you know, rather than thinking about black people as fully equal and examining presuppositions of white supremacy and thinking about the relationship between men and women and considering what it means to live in a society with strict hierarchies that are top-down forms of authority, they simply submit their racial views to those hierarchies. And that's why I think that within certain quarters of both fundamentalism and parts of evangelicalism, uh, there is a real resistance to engaging something like Black Lives Move, Black Black Lives Matter, and also to simply accepting us. Really, I mean, critical race theory. All that is is a tool uh, by which you invite people into seeing the world a different way uh, by examining assumptions of race, of texts, and um, really hermeneutics, how you interpret the world, and so. Uh, Black Lives Matter and critical race theory, um, you know, they question the whole enterprise of hierarchy and order that was really put into place, or at least I think took over a considerable part of evangelicalism in the 1980s. I'm going to read the last tweet that you wrote in that tweet thread and have you explain what you meant by that. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> And you you put it in parentheses. You wrote, those of you who know my work can probably better understand why some things are so important to me now and how some wounds can shape a lifetime of writing and preaching. Oh, wow. You forget what you put in public sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just told a little of that story. You know, I was I was very young and I had been very influenced by the sort of the radical edges of evangelicalism in the 1970s. Uh, I hear a lot of sadness in your voice. Well, I feel sad about it. Um, Because I, there was a, there was a beautiful energy and empowerment of the way that I experienced evangelicalism in the 1970s as a teenager. And in the first, really through my college years, um, there was a passion and a real engagement that I entered with the world. And I think I experienced evangelicalism at that time, maybe a little like Quakers did in the 1650s in England, or uh, maybe the early evangelicals in the Wesleyan, Wesleyan movement. It was all about um, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. You know, that was, that was, that was my experience of early evangelicalism. And then when I got to seminary and I sat down and there was that lunch with this young professor who I really admired is that he introduced me to this other stream of theology that for whatever reason, um, I found compelling And for about a decade of my life, I believed it. And I feel like I said and did things um, during those years that that I regret very deeply and I feel embarrassed about. 
you know, arguing with girlfriends about how they shouldn't get ordained, that it was against God's will. I mean, if anybody can even imagine you doing that. Um, being not terribly nice uh, to even a couple very close friends who were gay men, uh, telling them that they were outside of the order, good order of God. I mean, really, if you hear sadness, yeah, I'm almost close to tears at this point. And, and not understanding race really separating myself off from the questions about race so I wouldn't even have to deal with them. When you go through something like that, when you believe something very strongly and you come on the other side of it, you carry with you really a sense of woundedness and humility that lasts with you for the rest of your life. You know, regret is a very powerful part of human experience. Um, But it is also a very empowering thing uh, because once I realized how much I had surrendered my autonomy to a vision of order that I don't actually think is biblical, I was able to reclaim uh, the gospel. I was able to reclaim my faith so that it was really, truly mine. And I think that that's when I discovered my voice as a writer. And so the what was the wounds are there, and the people I wounded, some of them, who stayed friends with me through the years, and I can't ever think anything but the deepest sense of gratitude for people who continued to love me even when I was going through this terrible intellectual period of my own life. So that all is still with me, but the other piece is also with me. It reshaped me. And I just committed myself that never again would I fall for anything like that. And instead, learn to really listen and to open myself up to um, engaging uh, the ways in which scripture is interpreted with um, curiosity instead of judgment. And to always be asking myself the question, uh, where is the Holy Spirit present now? And, and what is surprising um, about the gospel? And so when it, when it comes to these texts, you know, the, the sadness is real. Um, and it makes me sad that there are probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of American Christians who are locked inside of interpretations of scripture that were culturally embedded in 19th century racism and hierarchy. And they don't know that. Um, So that, that makes me very sad. But the other piece of it is I'm going to, you know, I think the church has a huge message uh, to preach, which breaks out of that um, and moves into the conversation right now about race and stands with the people who are on the street saying this is not just and um, that Jesus, of course, is always on the side of the suffering and the bleeding and the lost and the voiceless. And, um, you know, when it all comes down to it, uh, that's uh, where every Christian is called to be. So, so you so that's uh, the autobiographical autobiography piece for me is that I walked this whole terrible journey 
of evangelicalism from the bursting forth of evangelical enthusiasm in our culture in the 1970s on the beaches of California and the gentle waves of the Pacific being baptized all the way through the Reagan years and their quest for order and this reinstatement of, of deep patriarchy and racism within the evangelical subculture, just, just claiming that space from the 19th century and saying, this is what evangelicalism really is. And then for myself coming to the other side of that and rejecting it and, uh, and doing my very best as a writer, as a preacher, as a teacher, as a friend, as a mentor, and all the different things I do in the world um, to help people uh, see uh, the our hermeneutic matters. <laughs> it sounds like a crazy thing to have learned in life, but our hermeneutic matters. The way you read scripture is going to have a huge impact. What the lenses are that you have on when you go to the text has a huge impact on the way that you understand men and women, Jews and Greeks, that is people of other religions, and slave and free, the questions of race and and uh, and freedom. And so uh, I've gone back to Galatians 3.28 as my general hermeneutical lens <laughs> rather than that of Ephesians 5. And I think it's just a fight that evangelicalism is is having. Um, and um, I don't have much doubt which side of that fight that I'm on. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, before we leave, is there anything else uh, you'd like to share about uh, anything you're working on now or how people can find you? Oh, well, um, you mentioned a couple of things. I, people can always follow me on social media. Uh, particularly on Twitter, um, but I am—I do have a public Facebook page. My private one is is the limited one, and it's full. I'm sorry to say, uh, but the best place is my Substack newsletter. Um, people can also reach out via my website. I am writing a book about Jesus, which comes out in late March 2021, and I'm very excited about that. And and. I just can't believe that you asked me all these questions today because I did in that book, there is an entire chapter um, about this quest for order uh, that consumes evangelicalism in the 1980s. And I talk about how that had an impact on my own life, but it also had a larger impact on the ways in which we experience Jesus um, in American culture and society. So there's only a couple people who have read it. It's uh, you know still a little bit under wraps. Some of your listeners may know Brian McLaren. He's a very good friend of mine. He, he read it and he got it when it, it, when he finished, he, he called me up and he said, Diana, this is this. He said, I always forget that you were an evangelical. He said, but this chapter about evangelicalism in the 70s and 80s, he, he, he said, it's funny and it's sad and it helped me understand so much more about my own life as an evangelical. So I'm hoping that other people, when um, the book is called Freeing Jesus, um, so I hope when uh, Freeing Jesus uh, hits the stands, uh, 
some of people who are evangelicals with questions will find their way to it. And, uh, and in that, I hope that they will find uh, a real sister uh, who is willing to walk alongside and help them rediscover uh, the joy of really what it means to have a lifetime of love uh, for, for Jesus. Mm, yeah, that does sound interesting. But thank you so much for joining the Protestants and Politics podcast. Well, thank you. It's a great thing to talk about, and um, I wish you well with this endeavor. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This episode was recorded on August 28th. The background music is courtesy of Purple Planet. Be sure to sign up for the Protestants and Politics newsletter. You can support this podcast at my coffee page. Links to both of those are in the podcast description. <laughs>